I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. As a trans person, the word disclosure is so familiar because of this idea that the onus is on the trans person to disclose something about them for the benefit of the non-trans person to protect them for something, right? That That is the one thing I ask all people to think about is like, where in your mind are you seeking that disclosure, you know, and how can you disrupt that? Pride Month is here. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And I'm Trana Winter. Happy Pride, everyone. That was Sam Fader. You just heard the director of the Netflix documentary, Disclosure. So excited. You'll get to hear that later in the show. We also got to speak to Chella Mann, actor, model, activist, uh, executive producer of Trans in Trump Land. Was very excited to speak to him. In our last episode, we spoke to Andrea Bennett, the author of Like a Boy But Not a Boy. And there is one line in the book that really resonated with you. Yeah, the line is, I need the world to make just enough space for me that I can become completely unremarkable. There is so much there because, well, there is this expectation of queer people that we just want to be visible at all times. We want to be on stage. We want to be on podcasts, on movies, on talk shows. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm naked. Here I am. Want me, fuck me, love me. That's why I was so surprised that you would that you would identify. But I, I get it and I feel the same. But why do you identify with that line? So for me, you know, as a trans person, I'm sort of in this position where I have to perform a certain amount of femininity in order for my identity to be understood. And that's always really frustrating and limiting for me. And so for me, the idea of being unremarkable is really about being free. It's about there no longer being expectations on my appearance and that I could just move through the world being me, looking however I want to look in whatever moment. Do you feel that you owe society looks? Less and less, but yeah, I do still feel it. I do, because when I don't, that's when I'm misgendered. That's when there's confusion about who I am or what I am. And it's just really annoying. And I'm also just really bored of talking about my transness. (laughs) Like, it's just, for me, I'm at the point in my career um, where I've spoken about it so much. I love that. And I just feel like <laughs> I have nothing more to say about this. It's, you know, for, as far as it relates to me, it's no longer interesting. Are you scared that people are not going to be interested in you if you don't keep talking about being trans? That's a good question. Maybe a little bit. You know, if there's like a great job and they're looking to hire a trans person, like I'll milk it if I have to, <laughs> you know. Um, but... I don't know. I'm just, 
I think I'm just exhausted. No, I get that. You know, and for me, it's the double whammy of being trans and also being a performer. Yeah. You know, being a performer, you have to be remarkable. And mm. I do still care about being remarkable in that dimension of my life. But when it comes to my own gender identity, like I don't want that to be the main thing about me. I get what you mean about being unremarkable. My fear for you and for myself is that is tied to hiding and that is tied to like, this is too exhausting. What kind of irked me when you said, I want to be unremarkable as a friend. I was like, no, don't, you are remarkable and don't like shrink yourself. And I say that to myself as well. It's like, because I know it's easier to just like under earn and be invisible and be hidden and maybe be. I mean, I do suffer from all of those things, like for sure. But for me, the reason that line really resonated didn't have anything. My mind didn't even go to that. Like it really was just this idea of being free of people's expectations. And that the idea that being trans can truly just be, well, quote unquote, normalized. I hate that word, but just, I guess what I mean by normalized is just understood. Imagine if we get to a point where being trans is banal. That's what I mean. Like where, so if I am remarkable, then it will be because of the things that I do and create, not just because I... Mm. I'm trans. Like that that shouldn't be remarkable. It is in this world because it's still largely misunderstood. Um trans people are still villainized, trans people are still disproportionately victims of violence and hate. So that when I the reason that line spoke to me is that it it truly is the dream to live in a world where I can move through it without thinking about being trans the way that a cis man or cis woman does not think about their gender and are not constantly confronted by it. That's why it was so interesting to speak to Sam Fader, uh, the director of Disclosure, the groundbreaking documentary that came out a year ago. So it's been a full year since Disclosure has been on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, you are forgiven for the next 72 hours. (laughs) You have to see it. Basically, Disclosure is a survey, um, a history of trans representation in media that goes all the way back to silent films up to the 90s. And it's all sort of examined from the point of view of very prominent trans actors and writers who are giving their commentary on these images that we've all been subject to. Oprah, when she interviewed Elliot Page for their first TV interview, Elliot's team requested that Oprah watch his disclosure um, just to be a bit more sensitive to the issue. And the documentary is also nominated for a Peabody Award. So it just shows the cultural impact that it's having. Growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s, I had sort of sold myself on this narrative that there was no trans representation. But watching Disclosure is proof that no, there was. It's just that the representation that was there was so negative and so dehumanizing that I'm sure on some level it made me afraid to accept my transness. And I wanted to ask Sam if he had been through something similar. I'm not sure I've ever met a trans person that hasn't internalized those sort of images, right? Um, or the, I, I don't think I've spoken to a trans person that has had that hasn't 
um, the, the fear of being rejected because of the body that you move through the world in is, is so deep and pervasive. I mean, I, it's always in the back of my mind when I have a romantic interest, you know, always. And, and it, I think, you know, what happens is there's that issue that's in the back of your mind. And now we have this visual association, right? So we might have these fears, right, a, a, around our bodies, which everyone does, right? Everyone is vulnerable with their bodies and sex and romance and intimacy. But when you have this pervasive image of someone vomiting at the sight of a trans body, right? That, that pops into your head with crying game and Ace Ventura and family guy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That, that's, it's really hard to shed that. It's really, really hard. And then so what I hear from so many people when they watch disclosure is they have, so often there's a specific generation, a few years younger than me, people who are like maybe in their like, you know, mid to late thirties now who are obsessed with Ace Ventura, like loved it, like grew up watching it all the time. And again and again, they're just like, I didn't remember. I didn't, I didn't get that scene. I didn't understand what was happening. And that's really, that's really scary, right? To think like how that influences people's subconscious, you know, and how they're going to understand themselves and other in the world around them. Yeah. What, what you're sharing um, kind of brings me back to Sandra. Uh, I think for me was one of the participants who, kind of moved me the most because everything you're describing is basically the reason why she probably wasn't um, disclosing or out as a, as a trans person, as a trans woman. Um, so just to give context to, to our listeners, um, who is Sandra Caldwell and why did she decide to come out uh, as a trans woman in 2017, well into her career as an actress on Broadway? Yeah, Sandra Caldwell is now nearly 70 years old. She lives in upstate New York. Um, she, you know, was in the Washington, D.C. ball scene. You know, she she was with, which I can't remember which house it was, but it was one of the houses we're all familiar with. Um, and at some point at that age, she decided that she needed to be stealth, right? That she needed to live not, you know, with little to no disclosure. Um, and she had her family support from the beginning her mom, she and her mom were very close and she was she became an actress and a model and was you know worked in Europe and worked in Canada a lot and got a lot of gigs and was you know at this point has been in over like 50 television shows and episodes and and handful of films and when she saw Laverne Cox um, in the media her mom called her <laughs> And said two things. <laughs> said that should be you, <laughs> and also said now it's safe. Now it's safe. Now you can come out. So that's why she did. Um, and so she slow. She spoke to her agent. Like I, I'm not sure if her agent knew. There was someone on her team who did know, but most of the people on her team didn't know. So she had to come out first to her team, and then to her colleagues, and of course, you know, her partners knew. Like she, you know, she has a husband and. Um, but her best friends didn't know, you know, so she, um, she did not believe it was safe. She did not believe she could have a life. She did not believe she could have a career and she wouldn't have, you know, we hear again and again of people who tried. In Disclosure, you centered the stories of so many black um, trans folks who have been underrepresented. So you've spoken to people like Laverne Cox, MJ Rodriguez, Marquise Wilson, Sandra Caldwell and so many others. So why was it fundamental for you to tell their stories or share their experience in Disclosure in such a powerful and really central way in the work? That's the community. That's my community. You know, most of the people in the film I've been in conversations with or I've worked with 
so it it from my standpoint it would have taken more work <laughs> to not include everyone that I did right like these are the people who have been leading the conversations um and to not include would be an act, act of erasure like that is the history that is there right and i think for some people it feels complicated <laughs> for some reason <laughs> um they, people want to parse these things out. They think there's different histories that they don't reflect and influence one another. Um, and uh, if anyone's familiar with James Baldwin, you know, it's like, that's who I grew up reading when I was 15. I mean, race, class, and gender are constantly, you know, swimming around each other and, and living within each other. So and that's how I approach work. So I, I couldn't imagine it any other way. As your friend and, you know, having had all the conversations that we've had over the years on the show, I couldn't help but wonder what your relationship to the concept of disclosure is and how you felt that applies in your life. I definitely underestimated how much work it was going to be to, like, manage people's expectations and the way that they view me. You know, like when we go to do an interview at a TV station or a radio station, I always feel this need to write the producer in advance and give this sort of warning almost that I'm trans and when you see me, you know, I might not look like this perfect feminine goddess, but please know that no matter what I look like, my pronouns are she, her. Please make sure that's respected. I have to go through this really, to me, what feels embarrassing experience and process just to make sure that I don't encounter an uncomfortable moment. I wanted to know about Sam's relationship to the idea of disclosure and why they decided that that would be the title of the documentary. As a trans person, the word disclosure is so familiar because of this idea that the onus is on the trans person to disclose something about them for the benefit of the non-trans person to protect them from something right to and it's it's assuming that we are not who we show up as so you know the, that burden of explanation um to justify your existence in the world um i think is really harmful um and unjust and Everything, when you look at the history of trans representation, everything leads back to saying that, that you're not who you say you are, that you actually don't, you're not real and you don't exist. And it's that moment of the reveal of the disclosure, you know, that opens that conversation up. And, and so ultimately, you know, that, that is the one thing I ask all people to think about is like, where in your mind are you seeking that disclosure, you know, and how can you disrupt that? Where, how can we have an intervention in that path that our brains go through when we're thinking about trans people. We all do it. Trans people do it too, you know, for very different reasons than non-trans people, I think. Um, but, you know, what is, how can we disrupt that? I've heard you mention a lot in interviews um, that trans representation in film and television and the arts is a means to an end. And I'm curious about what is your idea of the end? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> nobody's ever asked me in that way before because I'm just like we're all gonna die <laughs> well I mean there's that obviously <laughs> um, but do you think that it speaks to this idea that's you know coming up more and more of the idea of like 
post-gender, a post-gender world? Is it related to that? No, I'm not interested in post-gender. I like gender. I think gender is sexy and hot and fun and interesting. And um, I, I'm not interested in gender being over. I am interested in the policing of gender being over. I'm interested in gender being a site of exclusion and hierarchy being over. I'm, I'm interested in, in the oppression of various genders you know, being over, but I love gender. But when I say it's a means to an end, it's 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 that's in response to the sense of like that people think that there's some conversation around visibility being the only goal. And once we have visibility, we've achieved success. I mean, visibility gives material success to very few people. Um, and we live in a capitalist culture and <laughs> people need material resources. Um, so visibility takes us towards more of a conversation, more inclusion, but it also makes people really vulnerable, you know, in the process. And we have seen, and during an increase of visibility for any social justice movement, there is an increase in social and legislative violence. And that really has to be contended with. And I want to, I'm very curious about how that can be circumvented, right? Why, why is, this, is that inevitable? Is there a way that we can avoid that violence that comes with an increase of visibility? Because we need the visibility, not only as humans, we need to be mirrored and reflected. We all need role models, but as a culture, as a mediated culture, you know, the, the media is the, I believe that the most impactful cultural institution of our time, you know, so we, we need it. I believe we need it, but at what cost and, and how can we learn um, from this lesson that we've seen again and again and again, that as soon as a marginalized gets, you know, mainstream attention backlash ensues. So that's what I mean when it's, it's not a, it's, it's only a means to an end, right? It, 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 it allows the conversation to, take new forms to reach new people but there's still it's just the beginning we see there's so much more work to do i mean just this week you know healthcare got criminalized in arkansas i, I mean yeah it's <laughs> like okay like so clearly laverne being on the cover of time magazine seven years ago you know is not is not the end we've, we've got a lot of work to do Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I can't even tell you how many times I've been in public space, particularly early in my transition, when I would walk into a subway car and people would just burst into laughter. And I think people are been trained to have that reaction. According to a study from GLAAD, 80% of Americans don't actually personally know someone who is transgender. So most of the information that Americans get about who transgender people are, what our lives are and are about, comes from the media. I, you know, the film has been so well received and it's meant so much to people within our community and outside. This might be a stupid question, but you know, for so many queer people, the Oscars are sort of like the queer Super Bowl. And I think a lot of us 
wanted to see this film nominated for everything that it's done, for everything that it's represented. Do you care about that kind of stuff? Did you feel snubbed not getting the best documentary nomination this year? Of course I cared, right? Like acknowledgement <laughs> is so important. Um, validation from your peers, um, from, from people who can give you jobs, you know, um, and as much as I would like to say, I don't care about awards. Like, of course it feels good. Um, I do feel that our film had a really amazing impact, more of an impact than I ever anticipated and quicker than I ever anticipated. And that I'm incredibly proud of. And I feel for that alone, it, it would have been really nice to be at least shortlisted, right? To have that acknowledgement that people see this and, and see the importance of it and that people are listening, that it's needed, that it's never been done before. Um, and, you know, it didn't. And it was questionable. You know, you look at other things that did get shortlisted that don't have the same impact. And I think the film and the work that was put into the film and the people who showed up for the film and the impact the film has had um, was, was Oscar worthy. Yeah. I could not agree more. Like, could not agree more. I There's one question I want to I want to get to it now, because you've talked about the impact of the film um, and representation. We all know it. It's very important. We've all known for very long that cis actors should not be playing trans roles. But do you think that by doing this film and by having so many people seeing the film, finally, we will not have to sit through another Oscars where there would be a cis actor nominated for a trans role. I, and I'm, I'm thinking obviously of Jared Leto and Hilary Swank that you, you show in the film. Do you think that you've achieved this with, with this closure? I think we're in a course correction time. And during a course correction time, I think there, a course correction time necessitates a, a certain amount of rigidity, right? And explaining why doing certain things are dangerous and need to be stopped um, in the hopes that you find some balance and then there is more artistic freedom. And whatever that artistic freedom is, is, is to be determined. Um, do I think we will never see these things again? I don't know. I don't know what the world will be that we're living in. Um, but I do think that in the next few years, while we're still in course correction, I don't think it can get that far. I think there would be too much of a, a backlash. You know, um, it'll still happen. People will still cast as people. It'll get, it'll get greenlit. Um, People will be shocked that the community is upset about it. Um, but we're loud and we're strong and it, it, it won't go very far. And I don't know if you remember, uh, I think it was in the fall or late summer, it was announced that Haley Berry would take on a role as a trans guy. Mm, and she even yeah. talked about the guy as a woman. Like she had no idea what she was <laughs> doing. And I'm a huge fan. I adore her. And, um, you know, very quickly through social media, Um, our teams talked and our team was like, you know, there's going to be some backlash if you keep going. Why don't you watch Disclosure and think about if you want to do this? And she did it in like 48 hours. Wow. Right. So no matter how good of a person or how well-intended they are, right, they have been inundated their whole lives with these images. And often we don't know what we don't know. Now that we have this tool, right, now that we have this thing that people can share with one another, tell other people to watch that has, that has been given, you know, a seal of approval by decision makers, um, people in powerful positions, you know, so I think that that really helps, you know, like all the trans actors and actresses that I'm in touch with have told me like, you know, 
anytime they're in conversations for a part, they make sure people have watched disclosure. You know, anytime they're meeting casting agents, they make sure people. So, so that's great. That's super. So that's really exciting. I mean, I've been, and then, in, you know, behind the scenes, we prioritized hiring trans people and, and, and we had a mentorship program and, uh, different, you know, HR groups are hearing about that and DEI groups, and they've been asking me to come in and talk. So the impact has been, you know, really, uh, vast. Yeah. Yeah. In relation to that, you know, what you just described and, and representation, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of stuff that goes behind the scenes in the industry and trying to create positive and nuanced and three-dimensional depictions of trans people in the arts. You know, and in addition to co-hosting this podcast, I'm also a writer and a comedian, and I've begun recently, you know, pitching a show that has a trans lead. And it's difficult and jarring to walk into these rooms where I'm speaking with these executives or higher-ups at whatever place it is who are all cisgender And I'd really love to know some of your experience in those kinds of moments, trying to get trans stories told and trying to get the cis people making these decisions to understand the importance when it doesn't really have anything to do with their lived experience. Oh, I would like to know too. (laughs) That is really hard. You know, I I, I think it's not until we have people who have a stake in the conversation, a risk, um, life experience in decision-making roles that we're really going to see change, right? Um, you know, right now I'm getting pitched some screenplays and from producers who are all cisgender and they know enough to try to find a trans director. They know enough to hire a trans person to adapt the screenplay. And maybe even it's based on a book that's written by a trans person, but they're still, they still don't know what's good what's a good trans story. (laughs) They're still not seeing like the, the, the harm of certain narrative devices. Right. So until we have trans people with the experience, with, with the knowledge, because certainly not all trans people know this history, but until we have trans people in those decision-making positions, we're not really not going to see a change. Right. And likewise, when you're on a set, like it was really important disclosure to prioritize hiring trans people because that influences the story just as much as whoever is in front of the camera, right? There's a certain sensitivity and knowledge you have by having this lived experience in the world and navigating space and navigating how people respond to you and how people treat you. So for instance, the way like someone is mic'd, right? So if a, a trans guy shows up for an interview and he's wearing a binder and someone comes to mic him, a non-trans person might not know what to do with that binder and might not know how to talk about it. And that could affect the entire interview. It might make the person so uncomfortable and nervous and whatever feelings come up that distract them from what we're going to talk about. Right. So it was so important to have a trans person who was our sound operator to have that sensitivity. You know, there's just things you cannot teach somebody and, and that, and there's things that won't be, in there that won't be a priority to them, right? You Maybe you could teach them, but it won't be their priority. So if they're juggling a million things, it just might not be at the front of their mind. But for another trans person, it will. Likewise, for how we're lighting people and how we're framing them. And then, of course, how we're talking to people. So there's not enough emphasis on having trans people behind the scenes. I mean, it's starting. There, there's conversations, but it's usually marginalized people creating you know, these opportunities. Um, so it's, it's a little too slow. Um, but... 
you know, we just need to see more mentorship across the field because marginalized people, for very obvious reasons, uh, by choice or circumstance, have just not given or not have not been given the benefit of the doubt, have not been given the same opportunities, right? Have not been able to take the same opportunities. Uh, and so until we see people training and bringing in people, it's just not going to happen. One way that I'm, I want to jump in because one way that I find this is so clear in this closure is the editing. Like that film could not have been edited by a cis person. It was edited by a cis person. <laughs> it was? And I worked... <laughs> Are you kidding me? Because the editing to me was just like, wow, it's it was just so like careful in the way that like everything was kind of like brought together. It felt like the the authorship was was real to me. I was very, very, very <laughs> involved, much to the chagrin of my editor. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm sorry about yes. I'm sorry I assumed that person was trans. No, no, it's fine. One one thing I'd like to get in is the sort of lag behind um that we see because we've seen like um, Laverne make the cover of Time magazine in 2014 and only this year did we have a trans guy with Elliot Page um, we've had a couple of trans women on RuPaul's Drag Race but only this year with Gottmik did we have a, 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 a trans male participant why do you think there is there such a lag um, in terms of trans representation and that there's been more of a focus on the trans feminine experience more than the trans masculine experience in recent years in media Oh, I mean, I think there's so, so, so many reasons and, and ways to talk about that. Um, I ultimately think, you know, our culture commodifies female bodies and sensationalizes femininity. And that's the bottom line. Right. There's more money in it. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than being a girl. Right. And so that's what's ex interesting. Like, why would somebody want to be a girl? Whereas like, oh, you transition to a guy. OK, that's not so interesting. Like, of course, right? There's that sort of mentality. Um, but ultimately, I think it comes down to money, you know, and there's more money in Hollywood for sensationalizing and exploiting and being violent towards women. And trans women are not an exception. Um, and in fact, there's m more layers to that exploitation that bring in more money. Um, it's, I, I, I believe all of transphobia is deeply rooted in misogyny. Um, and cis and sexism and trans misogyny and trans sexism. So, um, you know, I think there's, I don't think it'll, it, it'll be very different trajectories, just like being a trans man and being a trans woman are very, very different. And so sometimes I get a little frustrated when people are like trying to make it one conversation because they're, it's such different experiences. Um, so it's going to be, a, it's going to look really different. And I guess to end, um, I saw, I was watching an interview that you and Laverne were doing together. Um, and you spoke about the idea of queer and trans cinema. And I think Laverne asked you if queer, if a queer and trans cinema even exists. And you brought up this idea that, you know, so far queer and trans cinema, if it exists, has really only existed in opposition to the pre-existing patriarchal heteronormative Hollywood structure. And I'm just curious what you think it might look like if we're able to move beyond that. I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, until we have people in positions of power making these decisions that have a stake in this, that change is not going to happen. So I guess my question is, what do we sort of do in the meantime? 
And is it possible to make our own queer slash trans cinema outside of this idea of opposition on our own terms? I mean, that makes me think about two things. Like one, there's this, there's this um, chapter or essay or piece that Richard Dyer wrote uh, in, in, I think in the 70s called, I think, Gay Film or something. And it's, it's talking about this idea of like, can you, what, what is this idea of gay film? Can gay film exist? And, and he kind of was talking about that there's no such thing. We have gay characters in straight film, <laughs> right? We have a, he, a, a very heteronormative hegemonic structure, expectation, you know, capitalist system um, that I, we're not going to see change in our lifetimes, right? So the language around gay film or queer film or trans film, I'm not quite sure what people mean when they say that. Is it trans stories? Is it trans characters? Is it queer stories, queer characters? Or is it, are we talking about the actual framing, the structure, the storytelling, the narrative devices, the takeaway, the experience for the viewer? You know, for me, that, that, that would speak to a different type of film, right? Where we can talk about it, you know, in this in this way that departs um, from from Hollywood structures. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to meet you both. Sam Fader. The documentary Disclosure is streaming now on Netflix. It is a mandatory viewing. And you can also follow Sam on Instagram. Their handle is samfader underscore one. The number one. One aspect that Disclosure doesn't really touch upon uh, is social media, like and the representation of, of transness and queerness and gender on social media and the sort of revolution that we have seen over the last five years. One person that is at the center of this is Chela Main. Uh, Chela is a transgender, deaf, Chinese, Jewish American uh, actor, model, activist. Does right? it all? Does it all? Anyway, so Chela is 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 the real deal. Uh, they've been using the platform to shine a light on the intersection of disability and gender and how we can have these conversations. Chela is also the executive producer of this. Really interesting yet triggering docu-series called Trans in Trumpland. It's a deep dive into the reality of trans people in red state America, states like Idaho, North Carolina, Mississippi, and Texas. I spoke to Chella about their work, and even with his deafness, I was able to have a conversation with Chella through the magic of technology on Zoom. Hi, Chella. Welcome to Chosen Family. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Where are you now? I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. Okay. Okay. You know, I've been following you for, for a few years now, like seeing your content pop up on social media. Um, so there has been a lot of talk in recent years about trans visibility in Hollywood, but you started out using other platforms to share your journey, which is how I knew of you. So mostly YouTube and Instagram. Um, there is even one video that I love of you showing the evolution of your voice over weeks and months after starting um, testosterone. Hi, my name is Chella Man, and this is my voice one day on T. Hi, my name is Chella Man, and this is my voice nine weeks on T. Hi, my name is Chella Man, and this is my voice 12 weeks on T. So why was it important for you to create content around that experience for social media? 
I grew up in a really small town in central Pennsylvania, which, you know, in short, I lacked so much representation, like so many people. But around me, it was just intangible all the time. You know, I didn't really didn't see any queer representation. Any, there wasn't a lot of people of color around me um, who were like connected to their roots. And um, of course, there, there was, I didn't really feel like I had anyone disabled to look up to, you know, in that way or to guide me. And so social media has been this gift. It has created bridges where like there wasn't any land in between two places. And I think that it has allowed people to be their own representation online and stop waiting for mass media to do that for them. You know, before there were a few outlets on TV and like if you were on that outlet, everyone knew of you and it was the same stuff. But now there's so much diversity. There's so much individuality because we have a voice and we can like just take a photo of anything post it and it who knows it could be viral you know and i think that that for the first time like it enables us to stop waiting for other people to like decide to uplift us and we are able to use our own voices to do that for listeners in canada or in places that are not conservative how would you describe growing up in such a conservative environment it was interesting, I will say. Um, I sum it up by saying, like, right before the election, Trump came to speak at my high school, and that's the kind of area that I grew up in. You know, I mean, for a long time, there was just a lack of dialogue, and I felt very isolated and frustrated and angry a lot of times growing up, but I didn't know why. I mean, it was rough, but it taught me a lot, and it also taught me how to find community in places like that. I feel one great example of this is your recent project, um, The Beauty of Being Deaf, which yes. is such a cool piece. Um, so basically, like, tell us more about the concept. So it's this video and photo series. We see pictures of you and other deaf people underwater. Um, you also said that it's a concept that you've had in, in mind for years since being a child. Right. So what was so important to you in that, in that series? Well, I mean, again, being a kid, you know, and not being surrounded by anyone who was really a positive influence to me um, in the disabled community, I, I just always known that there's been so much beauty within disability, but I never really seen any art created around it or even any dialogue, you know? So I would always think about like, just how beautiful it was to be deaf and like all of the things that being deaf had taught me and enabled me to grow into the person that I am today. And I was like, how can we show this, you know, as an artist, how can I present this to the world and make it visible and tangible for other people to perceive? And I always thought it was so cool how you were able to sign, you know, without any sound. And I always had this vision of like casting all these deaf people and us signing underwater about how beautiful it is to be deaf. And finally, this year, I was able to do that. And we made this film and I wrote this poem about the beauty of being deaf and I casted two other deaf people and it was just this day full of healing, honestly. It was, it felt safe and for me that's hard to find. Um, the doc, the doc really documents what it was like to be um, trans in Trump's America. 
already ch- changes have been happening pretty fast with Biden. We get that impression from outside the country, but I'm sure that's simply not the case. So what are some of the coming challenges, um, mm. do you think, for the trans community in America right now with the Biden presidency? I mean, honestly, right now, I'm I'm not the best person to ask in terms of law and legal things, but in terms of who is in office, it doesn't matter as long as the socialization around trans identities in a negative way still exists. We need to change how people perceive trans individuals. We need to have trans individuals be regarded with respect and be given basic human rights. And I mean, this is the bare minimum, you know, but that is still not happening. And uh, that can happen regardless of who's in office, just starting by whoever is listening out there right now or whoever is reading it out there is, um, I mean, it starts with you. It starts with checking in on the trans people around you. It starts with unlearning what could be an aggression towards the community, you know, donating to certain trans and queer organizations. There are so many different ways to shift the narrative of what's happening with trans people. Mm -hmm. I think one big point that's come up in recent years is how people can see identity as something that can divide us. But clearly, I feel that what you show is that we all contain multitudes um, and that's something I really appreciate in the work that you do. And it's so much a part of your activism. So in a culture that pits people against each other, how do you find that dedication? And how does it drive you to really have an impact? I've never stopped dreaming, you know? I think that's the answer. I'm continuously dreaming of a better world, a better place where we are able to feel safe. And right now it's not every pocket of the world, but I can honestly say that I have created that world in certain places within my life. And I think that's possible for anyone. And so that gives me hope, you know. That's all the time we have, Chella. Thank you so much for uh, connecting with Chosen Family today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I highly recommend that you follow Chella on Instagram at Chellaman, C-H-E-L-L-A-M-A-N. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? What is your obsession? I'm almost too embarrassed to admit it. Um, it's the movie Face Off. Oh, <laughs> I was in the mood to just watch something completely stupid, but I had no idea just how fucking stupid this movie is, but in the most sublime okay. way. So it's John Travolta, Nicolas Cage, and they change their, like, what is it? They, they swap faces. Oh God, that's painful. So, I mean, the plot is completely absurd. Basically, John Travolta is like an FBI agent and Nicolas Cage is like this terrorist villain. <laughs> well, you better hit me, Sean, because you only got one bullet left. So do you. We've got something in common. We both know our guns. What we don't have in common is that I don't care if I live, and you do. Sean, that hurts. So the movie opens in this like crazy action sequence. They catch Nicolas Cage. 
but they need information about where Nicolas Cage put this bomb in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) The only way to get the information, because Nicolas Cage is comatose, the only way to get the information is to go to Nicolas Cage's brother, who was also apprehended and is now in this like maximum security prison. So they know that the brother will not talk to John Travolta and just give him the information. So they're like, we're going to transplant Nicolas Cage's face onto you. Long story short, the operation is a success. John Travolta now has Nicholas's face, goes into the prison. While this is happening, <laughs> Nicolas Cage wakes up from his coma, faceless, calls his goons, (laughs) they kidnap the mad scientist doctor who performed this operation, and they get him to put John Travolta's face on him. So now John Travolta with Nicholas's face is trapped in prison, and Nicholas, the villain, now has the good guy's face. (laughs) And it just becomes this wild ride about, you know trying to get their faces back. Gina Gershon's also in it. It is so over the top. It is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life, but it was so entertaining. Face-off is a metaphor for drag culture. (laughs) (laughs) It's drag race. Face-off is camp. It is I've never seen two... Well, John Travolta, I can't say, is necessarily a straight man, but... (laughs) I've never seen two cisgender men pull off camp quite to the extent that these two have. Also, just to see Margaret Cho in the background oh, during all of this is, is so funny. Like, I can't believe Margaret is in this. Uh, That's yeah. good. Wow. What's your obsession? Oh, my God. My obsession um, is actually a new talk show. It's a Showtime talk show with the comedian Z-Way. Uh, it looks so good. So much buzz. Um, so that's the thing. We all live in bubbles, right? In my bubble, everyone is obsessed with Z-Way. And I'm sure in your bubble as well. Yeah. Yes. But maybe not in your bubble, dear listener. So Z-Way is a, an American uh, a comedian, and I think Nigerian-American. She grew up in Massachusetts. She's been a writer for comedy shows for almost a decade. And during the beginning of the pandemic, she kind of broke through the noise uh, with an Instagram talk show. And, you know, 21st century being what it is, she was picked, plucked, plucked up, up Instagram um, to host her own talk show on Showtime. Um, the thing is, it's woke comedy. I'll say it like it's it's the most woke, the most woke comedy, but is so funny. And I think the reason why you would enjoy it is the first guest is Fran Leibovitz. I saw some clips, and Fran is never she never loses her composure, but she kind of loses her composure with Z. As close as she yeah. ever has, <laughs> and Z-Way really holds her own with Fran, which is yeah. not an easy thing to do because Fran is so smart and fast and is an icon and is intimidating. But Z-Way is not afraid to ask her ridiculous questions. I'm honored that you, you're doing the show, but my question is, why did you agree to this? Do you know who I am? I don't have the slightest idea who Someone uh, who worked for you was incredibly persistent. Mm. 
incredibly persistent to the point where this just seemed easier. So it's a talk show and there are sketches um, and th the interviews are not like, it's not like glamoury, gossipy interviews. It's She's making people feel uncomfortable. It's performance art, honestly. She'll ask people like, how many black friends do you have? She, she and asked. <laughs> ask them these questions. Like she even asks Fran, like, what's a bigger issue to you, racism or slow walkers? <laughs> Anyways, it's a hit. Everyone's talking about it. And the it. fashion on the show. Oh, the God. look, the, the aesthetic of the show yeah, is, is amazing. stunning. It's yeah. like pink and fabulous and her makeup is amazing. And just to wrap it up, she, in that first episode, she um, speaks to a bunch of Karens and it's so, <laughs> like women actually named Karen and they don't really know, they don't know who Z-Way is, but they don't really know where they are and they share their experience of going in the world and as if it's difficult for them. It's really bizarre, but so funny. Yeah, I agree. It's wild. <laughs> Face off NZ way. You can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. One last thing, our Gemini episode of Lucky Stars, the web series we do with Extra Magazine is out now. So if you want to know what's uh, in the stars for people such as Kylie Minogue, Alanis Morissette. Sandra uh, Bernhardt, yes, Joan so, Rivers. So many of them. You have to watch Lucky Stars on Extra Magazine's uh, YouTube channel. Time for credits. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Thanks to Ted Kerr for putting us in touch with Sam Fader. Nantalian Dongo is our contributing producer. Judy Tsigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is our senior producer. And Arif Nurani is the executive producer of CBC Podcasts. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We're recording this season at Tome Park Studio. Of course, do not forget to follow us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show. And you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Like you're listening to us now, so you found it. Happy Pride Month, everyone. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.